Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning again. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much. This is Hour 2. If you missed Hour 1, you can always listen to it as a podcast, either at MyFaithRadio.com or by downloading the Faith Radio podcast uh, or the Faith Radio app. Yep, you can just text the word app, A-P-P, to 877-933-2484. We'll pop a link back to you. You can follow that and that way you can download the app onto your phone and have access to not only Mornings with Carmen, but um, but also Susie Larson Live and Afternoons with Bill Arnold and all the other great programming here on the Faith Radio Network. We would uh, appreciate it if you would become a missionary of the ministry and, you know, share with somebody else that um, that they should download the Faith Radio app, right? So that's something you can practical that you can do today to uh, invite others into the conversation. Let me say this, where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And so I want you to look out the window and tell me, is there smoke out there? Is there, uh, is there smoke out there today? From Minnesota and North Dakota all the way across uh, to Massachusetts and Virginia, air quality um, has been really bad uh, for the last day. So there's all these fires in Quebec, uh, in Canada, um, ignited by lightning and above normal temperatures and dry conditions have then like fueled these fires in Canada. And, you know, because of the way air circulates uh, from Canada down into the United States, um, there is smoke and where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Well, smoke from the wildfires in eastern Canada literally cast a haze over the northern United States yesterday, um, prompting air quality alerts um, all across the uh, the upper portion of the U.S. New York City actually had the worst air quality of any major city in the world for a part of last night. So um, you say to yourself, all right, well, what's the, you know, why is Carmen talking about this? Um, well, because we have a need to breathe. Let's, uh, let's, we could start there. But also where there's, fo- where there's smoke, there's fire. And um, fires are not just raging in reality in places like Canada um, and about which we are concerned and will continue to to lift up those who are seeking to battle those blazes, um, but also ask God to send rain. Um, there's a spiritual connection that we can make as well. I mean, there are fires raging in the culture, producing very acrid smoke, making it hard um, to breathe and frankly, making it so most Christians just want to stay inside. Well, I just want to, right? It's hard to exercise our faith out there in a culture where there's like acrid choking smoke produced by the fires 
in the culture today. And we have and we also have like arsonists out there setting cultural fire. So there's all of that is going on. There's a grave temptation, I think, as Christians to just stay indoors. Um, that's actually not the faithful response. Jude actually tells us um, that we are supposed to be people who get close enough to the fire to snatch people out of it, that some might be saved. So I want to remind us this morning of a few verses from Jude. So I'm going to read verses 17 to 25. Dear friends, remember, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. I mean, these are the people who divide you, create divisions among you, who follow natural instincts. They do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. I don't know if you needed to hear that today, but I needed to hear that today. Just a reminder of um, the way we are living today in uh, in a context not dissimilar to the first century in which Christians um, lived and were called to not just see the smoke, but to get close enough to the fire that some others might be snatched out of it. Are you getting ready for work today? Um, you're not alone. Lots of people are headed off to work, and many, many of them, maybe as many as seven out of 10, are going to work in a place where they describe having a bad boss. So as Christians, how do we deal with that? Bill English has a brand new book, Working for a Difficult Boss, and he's going to join us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Bill English is back. You can connect with him at BibleAndBusiness.com. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning. How are you, Carmen? I, I am well. I am well. I have a wonderful boss. I have a series of wonderful bosses. I work in an organization that um, encourages me. Not everyone is going to work today for a good and godly, wonderful boss. So can we talk about working for a difficult boss? Absolutely. All right, so it's your brand new book, Working for a Difficult Boss. Um, you, people can pre-order it. I don't think it's dropped yet, um, but you can uh, you can get there through BibleandBusiness.com um, or, you know, directly in all of the places that sell the books. Um, so talk with us about the reality um, of the very, very high percentage of Americans who, although they are going to work, which is a good thing, are not going to work at a place where there is a boss who is affirming, encouraging, and lifting them up. Well, uh, yeah, the uh, we estimate uh, that you know, 158 million people are going to go to work today, and when you boil the numbers down, you're going to find that about out of those 158 million, 40 million of them are Christians. 30 million of those 40 million 
are going to be working for a really difficult boss. And America's solution to to, um, to people who have bad bosses is to say, you just got to leave and go find another job. But the reality is, uh, many times when you leave one difficult boss, you end up in a place where you have another difficult boss. And so as I, I was always intrigued with this notion that Daniel um, worked for some really difficult kings. He was in a difficult spot really his whole life from the time he was deported from Israel until the time he died in Babylon. And yet he maintained his faithfulness to God. He, he uh, gave an excellent work product, and he was a witness for Yahweh at the highest levels uh, of Babylonian uh, politics at that time, right? And so sometimes I think that God calls us to work for a really, a, a boss that's just basically a horse's patoot, right? And, and this can be in ministry, or it can be in business. Some There are some pastors here who are very difficult to work with. They might be highly gifted communicators and uh, very knowledgeable in the pulpit and excellent leaders, but they're just really, really, they can be meaner than a junkyard dog behind closed doors. And so how do you work for, how do you work for these guys and gals with these guys and gals um, and, I think that Daniel's life gives us a lot of insight into how to do that. All right. You're also teaching through this book on your YouTube channel. I want to make people aware of that. So you can um, actually uh, join in with Bill in a study of of the book on YouTube. Um, you're going to look for Bible and business. Um, why Daniel? Like, why use Daniel as our exemplar here? You know, when I when I thought about this whole concept, I you know there, I thought about Joseph, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but that mm-hmm. was more of a betrayal, and we didn't have a lot of interaction recorded between him and Pharaoh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the the more I kind of circled the drain on on who to use, um, I I was thinking about Daniel being chased by uh, Saul, but that really wasn't. A very healthy relationship. In other words, um, not not Daniel. I'm sorry, David. David, David yeah, being chased we, we by it. Saul. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so um, that just didn't quite fit what I was after because I was trying to write a book for the mid and upper level Christian manager in a for profit business. No one writes for this group, right? Everybody writes for the leaders or for the for the kind of the grunt worker who works at at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. But nobody writes for that mid-level manager who is trying to serve God in business. They usually have a team or project that they're responsible for. So they have to manage down. They have colleagues uh, that they have to manage sideways. And they have bosses, usually more than one, that they have to manage up with. And they get squeezed a lot. And so I was looking for somebody uh, in the Bible, who had a similar kind of position, and I thought Daniel was it. So that's why I chose Daniel. All right, we're going to talk about being a person of influence um, as a Christian in your workplace, managing down, managing sideways, managing up. What does that look like? It's vocational discipleship. It's based in understanding and recognizing God's unique gifting to you as an individual. And so 
Um, you know, I, I want to uh, take two uh, approaches here. One, if you're headed to work and you have a difficult boss, um, we want we want you to know you're prayed for. We want to bless you. And we want to recommend um, Bill's brand new book to you, which you can find at BibleandBusiness.com, Working for a Difficult Boss. I also want to say this. If you are a difficult boss, um, yes. you know, we, we got a word for you today as well. So you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Bill English and I will be right back. Thanks so much for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, would you consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine? Search Susie Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Continuing our conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. We're talking about Bill's brand new book, Working for a Difficult Boss. Many, many people are going to go to work today for a difficult boss. And let me just say this. If you are a difficult boss, stop it. I know that would be a really short book, but there you go. Bill, talk with us. (laughs) Well, I actually have a two-page appendix in my book if you're the difficult boss. (laughs) Okay, well, read us in on that. Ta- ta- if if you are the difficult boss, what does Bill English have to say to you this morning? Uh, well, you, you know, actually, you got to work on yourself. You need coaching. You need mentoring. You may need psychological therapy, and and you need to submit yourself to a group of people who are going to speak truth into your life. Um, usually, a difficult bosses have prof, and this is just true of all people, right? This isn't just true of bosses, but they have profound wounds from their past. They are, they are broken people, and their brokenness comes out in anger and control and uh, being offensive, bullying, that kind of thing. Those wounds from the past need to be healed. And uh, finally, what I suggest is that you cannot do this on your own. You have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ because only Jesus Christ can transform us from the inside out and take us from being carnal, cussed, ornery people into people who love and have a gentility and have a faith in God that only comes through the Holy Spirit. So that's the summary of that. Carnal, cussed, what was the third one? Ornery? Ornery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that would have been a really good book title. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, right? Um, talk with us about managing down, managing sideways, and managing up. Daniel actually, like, does all of these. He does. Mm-hmm. He does. And uh, we we see that in a number of, of places in the first uh, chapter of Daniel. Managing down, is, there's a ton of books on that. You know, we're, I'm taking my management team right now through Harvard Business Review's uh, new manager book you know so so you're a new manager what what should you expect there's a lot of wisdom uh that's out there on the market today about how to manage down managing sideways is all about influence and relationships because you don't have any positional authority right so managing sideways is developing relationships and sometimes paying it forward a little bit with somebody else so that perhaps you can ask for a favor in return down the road Managing up is all about understanding how your boss is going to be measured, what's important to your boss, and what can you do to help your boss be successful. 
How can you help your boss achieve what he or she needs to achieve? Whether it really helps you or not is somewhat beside the point. And it's not really brown nosing. We're not kissing up here, but it's it's just genuinely understanding this is what my boss is facing. What can I do to help my boss? When you manage up like that, you are not just, it, it's not about ingratiating yourself, but you're going to put yourself in a position of trust and confidence with your boss that maybe some of your team members won't have because they didn't think to manage up properly. I don't think that um, a lot of people maybe spend a lot of time thinking about the managing sideways or the managing up component. Um, Correct. But it's, it's, it's always happening. Those are relationships that always have to be managed. I mean, we manage all of our relationships. So um, where managing down might be actually managing performance and managing, I mean, like managing in the traditional sense. I think one of the things you're helping us do, Bill, is think about, managing as stewardship of relationships. And I I steward all of my relationships in every direction, not just the ones that, you know, go up a proverbial chain. Yeah, because business in the end, and really ministry, in fact, all of life, okay, it's really about relationships. You, the, the most successful people in life are people who do relationships well. Not just in terms of sharing their feelings and getting to know other people, but certainly in terms of managing conflict, understanding what makes another person tick and, and what's motivating that person and how they can get a group of people rowing in the same direction to achieve what God has called them to achieve or to you know, finish a project at work or whatever. So much of our success in life is not based on strategy or tactics, it's based on relationships. So good. Um, Bill, um, maybe we could spend time in the in the coming weeks and months just unpacking um, a few of the chapters of, of the book so that we can get a little more deeply into it. Would that be, would you come back and we could do that? Oh, I'd be happy to do that, yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, I think getting to know Daniel and how he responded um, he's such a wonderful exemplar of so many godly attributes in terms of the character and the ways of God. Um, and there's a lot for us to learn from him. So thank you for um, putting it together in a book. And then thank you for walking with us in this journey. The book is Working for a Difficult Boss. It's brand new. You can uh, find the link to it at bibleandbusiness.com or via all of Bill's social media. You can also um, you know, find it where they sell the books. <clears throat> Working for a difficult boss. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. We got to take a break for Breakpoint. What in the world is going on in the world? I mean, have you asked yourself that question recently? What in the world is going on in the world? Have you asked yourself recently... Are these the end times? Is the end near? I can say this with confidence. Um, <clears throat> the end of all things is one day closer today than it was when we got together yesterday. So we are always living in the last days and in the end times. Um, I mean, s- since the ascension of Jesus, these are the last days and the end times. We just don't know which one of these last days is going to be the last day. 
Um, we don't actually know when time as we know it is coming to an end, but it it is. It, this is happening. Um, and I think we're tempted to ask ourselves questions like, like, could it, I mean, it couldn't possibly get any worse, right? Like it, it surely as I look around at what's happening in the culture, like it couldn't possibly get any worse. Um, we live in a time, a day and an age when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We have talked about it over and over again. Expressive individualism is one way to describe it. We also recognize that there are wars of all kinds of varieties um, waging in people's hearts and heads and minds and bodies and relationships. And people are subjecting other people to the most grievous of things. All of that grieves God. And so we wonder, like, like, how do we live as God's ambassadors in the midst of all of this? How do we... How do we live as Christians in the culture today? Ben Chang is going to join us next. Um, We're going to explore the question of how we live as the people of Christ, how we represent Christ in the present darkness of our contemporary, I'll use the term, culture wars. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ben Chang is born is uh, joining us now. You can find him at benchangblog.com. His new book, Christ and the Culture Wars, Speaking for Jesus in a World of Identity Politics. Ben, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. And it's lovely to be with you. I like the idea of babbling with Ben. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I thought I'd start with a bit of a lighthearted, lighthearted slogan for, for the website. I love it. Um, so the motivation um, to address this topic will not be uh, will not be a surprise to anyone. I actually just want to read the dedication and let you reflect on um, mm. uh, the world that Emmanuel is going to grow up in, um, and and maybe how you are desiring to speak into the world um, that our children are going to inherit. So the dedication in the book says, to my godson, Emmanuel, I have no idea what kind of world you're going to grow up in. But whatever happens around you, I pray that you will grow up to know and love Jesus. There, there, is, um, there is a message in there about your worldview. Can you um, reflect on that? Yeah, for sure. Um I, I in a couple of weeks' time, uh, we're going to be celebrating Emmanuel's first birthday. So he's uh, a really small uh, baby, and and uh, the son of um, some good friends of mine. Um, and I chose to dedicate the book to him, and um, by extension to people of his generation, um, because I mean our world is being transformed in in ways that are um, so comprehensive and so rapid, and the people who are going to be most affected by um uh, the this cultural revolution that's happening um, across the world uh, are children, are, are people who are um, growing up, who are going to school at the moment, and those younger than them. Um, and I have this real passion that it is uh, up to us to really grapple with these topics um, and think through them and then uh, be able to uh, engage with them and teach them um, for our sake, for the sake of the church, uh, but also um, perhaps most acutely for the sake of the next generation. So that's why I chose to uh, dedicate the book uh, to my nearly one-year-old godson. 
I like um, where you where you open, which is this reality that, like tectonic plates, um, the culture has shifted very dramatically um, in ways that have uh, it, uh, destabilized things. Like if I think about liter- how literal tectonic plates move, it would be incredibly destabilizing to be alive when that was happening. Um, those shifts have impacted uh, not just the West, but the rest of the world. Um, part of that is the way the world now sees the church. Can you just reflect a little bit on sort of the the, the current reality that we find ourselves in? Um, I know that that might be trying to look at what we're looking at, but can you help us do that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I suggest in the book that we are living in this grand cultural story, this grand cultural narrative um, that is uh, defined by the story of the oppressed groups, uh, waking up to their oppression and then rising up to fight against and overthrow their societal oppressors. Um, so we look at uh, feminism and how feminism is rising up against the patriarchy or ethnic minorities uh, rising up against white supremacy or uh, gay people and gay pride rising up against homophobia and heteronormativity and trans people rising up against kind of binary gender norms. And in this grand cultural story, uh, I suggest that Christians have found ourselves labeled as the oppressors. So Christians, in the eyes of our culture, are the homophobic, transphobic, sexist, racist, anti-liberal, anti-progressive bigots who need to be overthrown. And so... Uh, my, my book is basically trying to um, answer the question, well, what now? How should we uh, respond and engage as Christians to this culture that paints us out to be the oppressors? Um, first of all, it is, um, it's helpful. Uh, the way in which you frame the, the stories of feminism, racism, um, the, the gay and the trans pride um, movements in the culture it, the framing of those um, in, in the first part of the book is very helpful because you help us to see um, the claims that they're making and the structure of um, not only their argument, um, but how I as a Christian am seen through their lens. And mm-hmm. that is really helpful to for you to show us how um, those who are whose identity is in these various isms, um, their view of me and my ism. Like, I recognize I operate as a Christian um, and that that influences um, who I am, how I, how I live, and then how others see me. But sometimes, Ben, it's hard for me to see how others see me, and I think that that's one of the real gifts that you give us in part one of the book. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, and I'm very heavily influenced by uh, a British theologian called John Stott, um, who was um, uh, the rector of uh, my current church, All Souls Lying in Place. And uh, one of his big ideas, one of his many big ideas, um, uh, was this idea of double listening, that in order to uh, be a faithful and effective disciple of Jesus, we need to listen to the Bible, listen to the words, know it in depth. But we also need to listen carefully uh, to the world, uh, both the world at large and also our individual uh, worlds around us. And then uh, being a, a modern contemporary disciple of Jesus means building a bridge between the word and the world. And that's basically how I frame um, the opening chapters of the book. I'm trying to do um, 
one side of the double listening to begin with, listening to the world really carefully um, without wanting to pass judgment or, or, or wanting to get onto my soapbox, but rather just listen, uh, listen to uh, what people are saying, uh, listen to the books that are driving this, um, th this cultural narrative um, so that we can then start to speak with credibility uh, into this world. Because if we don't do our listening, um, I think the, the world can tell that very quickly and, and uh, we lose our credibility very fast. Yeah, we might be right, um, but we're not regarded as credible because of the way um, Christianity has come to be seen and because of the way that other Christians have responded to the world along the way. Like we have we have as Christians, maybe not you and I personally, but we collectively of Christ, as Christians have trained the people of the world to respond to um, what we're trying to do now. Um, I mean, like we've, we've trained them um, in, in part to respond to the gospel um, in ways that um, are negative. And so you deal with that as well. Um, you talk about the three common Christian responses and um, and you you frame them. These words are great: mirror, argue, ignore. And so maybe just encapsulate that for folks so they can um, understand and and maybe find themselves uh, in one of these three very very common Christian responses um, to sure. like why why they don't see us as Jesusy. <laughs> it's a great adjective jesus um i yeah yeah so uh, in the middle part of the book i look at these three responses that you mention um so mirroring uh what i mean by that is um some people who've been labeled as the oppressors in this grand cultural narrative have responded by trying to hunker down into their own identity groups um, and order and uh, are, are setting to um, defend and fight for their own rights um so black lives matter protests are met with calls of white lives matter and all lives matter um or if they call us um bigot and phobic then we'll call them snowflake and liberal elite uh, and so we end up just trying to mirror the arguments and the strategies um of uh, the social justice activists back at them uh, and so we end up with the quote unquote culture wars and i suggest um in in the book that uh this response is unproductive at best and can be really destructive um, so that's mirror. And then I move on to argue. Um, I suggest that many Christians have tried to argue with and debate the issues um, raised by these movements. And I acknowledge that there are lots of important discussions to be had, uh, particularly um, around sort of political policy, around healthcare, around education. There are lots of debates that need to be had. But the problem is that we now live in a world that um, seeks to cancel people who have, quote unquote, uh, politically incorrect opinions and so if you debate or argue or even just suggest opinions that are uh, are unpopular you run the risk of being um, cancelled uh, deplatformed blocked on twitter called a bigot and then ignored and i think that's something that we need to um, push back on i, I do uh, firmly believe in in the important place of of um of debate and disagreement in the public square but i also we also need to acknowledge that we live in this cancel culture that seeks to cancel those who hold unpopular beliefs and then third and finally, um, I look at the, the response of ignoring. 
Uh, and I think this is where most Christians uh, fall, at least in my experience, that we just bury our heads in the sand because we're too scared to broach these topics in public or in private. And so we simply bury our heads in the sand. And uh, to quote a uh, British uh, World War II poster, we just keep calm and carry on doing what we have been doing for the last few decades. Um, but I suggest that actually this isn't working, that um, uh, as you mentioned, um, Christians are uh, increasingly seen as uh, as as extreme, as uh, non credible, uh, as not worth listening to, and so I don't think we can just quote keep calm and carry on. We need a better approach. We're going to talk about that better way um, with Ben Chang in just a moment. Uh, the book is Christ and the Culture Wars: Speaking for Jesus in a World of Identity Politics. Do you um did you recognize yourself in that? Do you have a tendency to mirror? the way um, that those who are engaged in identity politics go about um, fighting for their own rights and liberties? Um, are, you, are you a person who mirrors the world in terms of how you fight um, with the weapons of the world and maybe not in the way of Christ? Are you, did you see yourself in, well, I'm, I'm that kind of Christian who tries to argue. I like to debate ideas and ideologies. I mean, I like people to have reality, reasonable arguments for things. And Maybe we need to recognize no one's ever been argued uh, into faith, that it comes, um, you know, by God's generous revelation. Um, Or are you, do you confess that, you know what, you've just turned away from it? You have, you've begun to ignore um, the world and its concerns, um, and you're just really pretty happy going about your own um, Christian life, maybe in the context of your own small, even shrinking Christian community of other believers, um, as the world goes to hell. Like, is there a better way? Let's talk about the better way next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Ben Chang, the book is Christ and the Culture Wars, Speaking for Jesus in a World of Identity Politics. You can connect with Ben and get lots of information about the book and read his blog at benchangblog.com. Ben, let's jump to the better way. Talk with us about the power of storytelling and the possibility of recapturing culture by telling the story of the counter narrative of the gospel. Sure, yeah. I um, suggest that um, identity politics um, and our current modern culture, uh, I I suggest in the book that uh, this culture is not actually driven um, by uh, logic and reason and political arguments, but rather uh, by stories of stories finding uh, liberty and freedom and fighting for justice and overthrowing their oppressors. And Therefore, I think a, a Christian response should not involve kind of facts and rules and arguments and condemnations because you can't argue against the story. 
Rather, what we should be doing as Christians is seeking to uh, tell a more powerful counter narrative. In the words of uh, my my friend and, and professor um, of psychiatry, Glenn Harrison, uh, we need to tell a better story. And I suggest in the book that actually a lot of the principles uh, that drive the identity politics movement, such as uh, liberty and identity and justice and equality, are actually at base fundamentally very Christian ideas. And therefore, if the Bible is true and the ultimate story of reality, then Christians will have a better story to tell on these issues than our culture. The appropriation of um, of language is is one of the things you got me thinking about. Um, let's talk about some ways that the gospel does resonate with the culture today and how we can actually use some of the language and the images, um, the ideas that uh, culture imagines or identity politics um, imagines, you know, are their words and their themes and, and, and help us see those as uh, places and ways to point back to the better story of the gospel. Mm. Yeah, so we could take um, well, any one of, of these many examples. Um, so we could take, for example, the idea of liberty. Uh, we, we all agree that uh, people who are oppressed and enslaved should be set free. But is, does our culture really give the best, most fulfilling story about liberty, about freedom? Uh, after all, uh, does freedom really come through total autonomy, doing whatever we want. Because that's the narrative that is put forward. Liberty comes from people being able to do whatever they please. And we actually know just logically from experience that that's not always the case. You know, every time that I uh, hand my car keys over to the the mechanic or if I uh, self-isolate after catching an infectious disease or if I send my children to school, in each of those examples, I am foregoing my autonomy in order to gain greater freedom and liberty in the long run. And actually, if we lived in a society where everyone just acted however they please as totally autonomous individuals, it would soon become anarchy, not paradise. Mm. So might it be that actually there's a better story of liberty? Perhaps one that involves a world that's uh, oppressed and enslaved by sin, uh, but then is uh, it tells of a, a, a savior who died so that we might be set free. But this freedom does not come from total autonomy, but rather living life the way it was meant to be lived. God's commands are not repressive diktats we follow begrudgingly. Rather, they are the creator's solid moral framework that show us how to flourish in God's creation. Surely that is liberty. Surely that is better liberty. That is a better story of liberty than anything our culture can offer. Um, so perhaps that would be, be one example. Yeah, I, it's the restoration of of a right relationship of the creature to the creator, and in a culture where people like to imagine that they're self made, um, and that um, they have exchanged the truth about God for lies, right? Worshiping creation themselves in many cases instead of the creator. Like this is not new. Like we even have biblical language for it. Um, and for those listening who don't know those references, they come from Romans chapter one. So um, I think that when we ground ourselves in Scripture, when we ground ourselves in um, in the best story ever, we become able to see truth 
Um, and, and then we need to be equipped to speak it. So I, I want, I don't want to miss the, um, the very last portion of the conversation, which is a bit of a, how now shall we live or how shall we now live? Um, uh, which it's interesting to me, Ben, this is a conversation that has to be brought forward in every generation. This conversation about how now shall we live as Christians demonstrably, as redemptive witnesses in the world today? Because what worked a generation ago does not work today. Yes, and, and that is the the last chapter of the book, is how we should live. So the book is mostly about how we should speak, um, but I do end on how we should live. And I, and I uh, take uh, Chris Wright's idea of we are redeemed for redemptive living. So throughout the whole of the uh, Bible narrative, uh, God's people are redeemed, but then are commanded to uh, go and redeem others. So, for example, when the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt, one of the first commands they get following the Ten Commandments is, here is the... Uh, the system by which you should release your Hebrew slaves. So the release slaves were meant to go on and release others. And so uh, we are redeemed as the people of God and we should redeem others. And um, I give some examples uh, in the book, uh, particularly looking at the uh, the UK context, but I think uh, these apply further uh, further afield, um, around how we should treat those who are oppressed or marginalized or disadvantaged uh, in our society, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, and in the wider world, um, because you know, if we if we simply just spout a redemptive gospel, but then just leave all these uh, needs uh, just un- unmet, then we lose our credibility. We lose our authenticity uh, very quickly. Um, I think our our world, our, our world of identity politics, not only needs to hear of a redemptive gospel, but to see it too. I think that um, it's in that seeing, it's in having that proximity of relationship um, where I earn the right to tell the story, to tell the better story. Um, and so I appreciate that, um, you know, you land the plane, you you end the book um, at, at, the, at the truth of um, as I live my life in next to, um, in proximity to others, um, Whatever story they're telling, whatever they're advocating, um, they're going to rub up against. It's going to run into the story that I'm living. And that is going to, I hope, win me the opportunity to then, you know, speak the truth in love as um, as you outline and um, and unpack. So I, thank you. Thank you for your contribution to the conversation that each and every one of us needs to be engaged in. The book is Christ and the Culture Wars, Speaking for Jesus in a World of Identity Politics. Um, you can connect with Ben at his website, benchangblog.com. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. Absolutely. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. Um, when was the last time that you did a paint by number? Mm-hmm. I am advocating a little paint by number today. So when we think about apologetics, when we think about being um, able to articulate the truth in a way that you know confronts the the falsity of the generation in which we live, we often think about making an argument. I'm going to make an argument. What if instead you painted a picture? 
What if instead today your apologetic was as an artist, not as an arguer? What would it look like for you to paint a picture, tell a story, be poetic? Paint by number today. And you say, what does she mean paint by number? I don't know. Find a passage of scripture and make it real in some artistic expression. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.